Oh, hey, I'm so glad that you found us. My name's Michael, and I get to be the pastor at Shepherd's Community United Methodist Church in Lakeland, Florida. You're listening to the It's Better When You're Here podcast, where every week we upload the messages that are preached at our church every Sunday. We hope by listening to this, uh, you feel safe, heard, and loved by the God that created you. We hope this message makes an impact in your life. If listening to this makes a difference, reach out to us and connect with us either on social media or on our website, shepherdsumc.com. All right, here's the message. Friends, we serve a God who is co-creating along with us a new world filled with new hope. So we concluded our series last week called Go and Do. I don't know if you can tell, but there's a similar theme this week. This is what preachers call a standalone sermon or what preachers also call, oh, whoops, I forgot to plan, but that's not actually the case. This was, this was planned a long time ago. I kind of had this inspiration because a lot of friends of mine are going to new churches. They're getting appointed in the Methodist season. This is kind of like the, the first couple of weeks of, of ministry at new churches. Bishops decided a long time ago that the first weekend of July is the best weekend for pastors to start at a new church, which I don't know why that is. The 4th of July weekend is like National Don't Go to Church Sunday. A lot of people are, you know, they're either planning fireworks or recovering from fireworks, but alas, it, that's the way it is. And so texting with friends, they are talking about what their first sermon is going to be. I don't think anyone remembers my first sermon here. I do, because I don't feel like it was very memorable. There were a lot of people here, and I did try my best, but your pastor was a little nervous. And so there were a lot of more ums and uhs. And, but a lot of my friends, they're preaching their first sermons by explaining their call story, how God called them into ministry. And I realized that I've never done that for any of you. I've never actually explained my call story. Call story is kind of a Christian word. I'll explain what it means later, but I realized that I'd never actually gave you the, the background on why I'm standing here and not doing something else. And I thought that that would be good to share. Some of this might sound a bit repetitive. I, I, I tell people I only have about 15 stories and I just repeat them over and over again with different details so it sounds new, but I do hope that you walk away with a few things. Number one, a little bit more knowledge as to why we're all in this mess with me as your pastor, but also an understanding that every single one of us has a call. It might not result in you leading a church or being in ministry full-time, but every last one of us, all of us, have a call from God to do something with our life. Because there is this belief, there's this belief in Christianity that there's a hierarchy of, of Christian, that there's like, you know, entry-level Christian, where like you go to the, the holidays, you know, we, we, we joke, it's called the CEOs, Christmas, Easter only, uh, the Cheesters, tree bunnies, right? You're there for the Christmas tree and the Easter bunny, but no others, and, and that's the lower level. And then the upper level is you go to Bible study, then you teach Bible study, then you become a pastor, and above that you become like, you know, a church mother. Um, I don't know, we don't really have those here at, at Shepherds, I guess we kind of do, but for me, it was Mrs. Albritton was the church mother. She was the one that had authority to tell any young person that they needed to be quiet in church, right? And she typically did that non-verbally. Typically did that from about five or 50 feet away. Youth would sit on the wings and Mrs. Albritton would sit at just an angle so she'd go like this and everyone would be silent, you know, that, that kind of thing. That, that's the highest authority. Maybe if you're Catholic, the Pope, right? 
but we don't have the, and, and the Pope would be just below a church mother in, in my understanding. But in all reality, there is not a hierarchy in the life of a Christian. There isn't some calling that's greater than others. There are callings that might be more difficult, but there's no hierarchy in the work of the church. And there's also a belief that some jobs are more important, that by being a pastor that I've got, you know, like a special line to God. I don't have like a red phone on my desk that rings directly to heaven, unfortunately. I, I don't, you know, have special prayers that are more powerful than anyone else's. I'm, I'm just a follower of Jesus. I just happen to do this with my life as well. And there's this belief that, that some jobs are more important. I, I remember recently there was a strike in France, because there's always strikes in France, of garbage workers. Someone that collects garbage is not typically seen as an upper echelon job in our society, right? They took two weeks off and Paris was flooded with trash. You understand very quickly that every job in our society is so vitally important. None of them are more significant than the other. So what is a calling? A calling is when we say yes to what God has for us. Being faithful to our call means believing in a future where God's dreams for us come true. Being faithful to our call means believing in a future where God's dreams for us come true. So let's look at the scripture. Samuel is near to the voice of God. In these days, God's presence was not in the entire world. God's presence was in the temple. And Samuel was set aside for service in the temple since he was a little boy. And he lived in the temple. At our lock-in this weekend, all the kids got to sleep in the temple. Our temple's a little different. Theirs was filled with gold. Ours is filled with not gold. And uh, we have air conditioning, so that's the positive side. We might not have gold, but we do have ice-cold AC. That's where Samuel lived. He was a little boy, and he grew up in the temple. He was near to the voice of God. And Samuel lives in a time when people have forgotten that voice. They've forgotten what God's voice sounds like. They're in a time when the people of Israel have a special relationship with God, and yet they've forgotten how to have that relationship. Though he lives in the temple, I, I want you to imagine what the temple might look like. Beautiful, ornate, candles and gold and all of those wonderful things, but there's cobwebs in the corners because people have forgotten what it is to worship God. They've forgotten what it is to listen to the voice of God. They've forgotten what the voice of God sounds like. So even though Samuel was close by, he's had no one teach him what that voice sounds like. And Samuel is different because Samuel chooses to listen when others would rather ignore their purpose. If you go on to read, you know, the first two chapters of 1 Samuel, you'll see that the, the priests then were spending most of their time finding ways to get themselves rich. Instead of doing the work of a priest, they were stealing offerings. They were looking out for themselves. They were trying to get book deals, right? They were, they were flying around on private jets. They weren't doing the work of what God had for them. Instead, they were looking out for themselves. But Samuel wasn't like that. Samuel instead was near to the voice of God, learned what the voice sounded like, and wanted to hear what God had for him. See, being faithful to our call means believing in a future where God's dreams for us come true. Samuel chooses to believe in the promises of God. Samuel, you know, soon after this, says, speak 
Your servant is listening. And then God starts talking. And Samuel hears it and chooses to believe. Everyone around him has chosen to doubt God, but instead Samuel chooses to listen. See, God chooses us to bring light to the world. All we need to do is believe God is at work. God chooses us to bring light to the world. All we need to do is believe God is at work. You see, isn't it strange that we have to believe that God is at work for God to be at work? You see, because we're the ones carrying the light. And if we don't believe it, who will? Maybe you've had this experience. I've, I've had this experience just recently, went to Home Depot. And it seems like every store has a credit card. And, and you, you'll save $20. Just don't look at the percentage rate. It's like 400%. But you go ahead and get this credit card. You'll save 20 bucks. It'll be great. Ignore the terms. Have you noticed that cashiers, they're tasked with, with trying to sell it to you? Have you experienced this? Do you want to sign up for a Home Depot card? And most of the time, it is said so quietly and so quickly, I think they're giving me a blessing in a foreign language. Would you like to sign up for a Home Depot card? And also with you. Um, and, and that's been my experience. I think sometimes we as Christians share our faith like we're trying to get someone to sign up for a Target red card. You know, I believe in Jesus. Instead of actually sharing our lives. Because it's hard to believe God is at work sometimes. See the world around us, and we think God surely can't be in charge. God surely can't be at work. I can't possibly share with others that God is at work in my life. And yet God chooses us to carry light into the world. All we need to do is to believe God is at work. Samuel then goes on to share his dream with others. You see, Samuel gets a call in his life and doesn't keep it quiet. wonder how many of you here in this space might feel a dream that God has for you in your life, but you're keeping it quiet. You're worried what other people will say. You're worried that you might sound ridiculous. You're worried that maybe no one will believe in you. I get that and I hurt for you. But the problem is dreams that aren't shared stay dreams. They don't become reality. You see, our dreams will not grow outside a community of belief. Our dreams will not grow outside a community of belief. If we're not surrounded by people that believe in us, our dreams will not grow. If we're not surrounded by people that think we are actually called to change the world, then they will not grow. They'll stay in our minds. They won't grow legs and run around. Samuel's dream allowed others to find their dream as well. Samuel becomes the high priest of Israel and inspires a return to worship of Yahweh in the nation of Israel. Things go awry, as they often do for the people of Israel, but Samuel makes it possible for King Saul to rise to power, for King David to rise to power. There are incredible things that happened because Samuel said yes. See, friends, being faithful to our call means believing in a future where God's dreams for us come true. So let me tell you my call story. Growing up, church was my safe place. 
church was where I wanted to be. We were good Christians. We were there, you know, no more than like five days a week. We were there a lot, right? Uh, Wednesday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night. And our, our church was 35 minutes away. I spent a lot of time in the car. But for me, church was my safe place. I loved being at church. Church was a place where no one um, smelled like alcohol. Uh, church was a place where all the adults were happy to see me. Um, I actually didn't know I had a really um, pretty severe speech impediment until I was like an adult looking back. Because when I went to church, everyone pretended I didn't. It was a space that was safe for me. Now, you've also heard me share that I was taught about a Jesus that wasn't necessarily as friendly as the Jesus that we believe here. That Jesus was a little bit more focused on hell and, um, you know, a little bit more focused on uh, getting things right. Not a whole lot of grace. Grace was for something that happened right after you died, not for the way you lived your life. And, and, and I've come to know Jesus in a new way, but still church was my safe place. And so I decided to follow Jesus, and in the tradition of my church, that resulted in baptism. In our church, we believe that baptism is the first thing that happens. Um, in the tradition that I grew up, we believe that baptism was the last thing that happened. It was our profession of faith. And like I said, my church was really focused on right belief, and so one of the things that happened before you got baptized is you'd be quizzed. So you'd be up in the baptismal, not heated, by the way, in Boston, Massachusetts, very cold, and you would be in with Dr. Fletcher, who was our pastor, and he would ask you questions about the gospel. And I see big eyes. Yes, it was intimidating. And he asked me, do you believe in Jesus? And I said, mm -hmm. and then he asked me, you know, a few other questions, but then asked me, when will Jesus return? And I said, I don't know. And everyone lightly giggled. And I remember in that moment, I thought to myself, ooh, I like that. I like being able to get in front of a group of people and take the very serious people I see around me. Everyone in church was so serious. When I was a kid, serious things were being talked about, and I couldn't be around to hear it, right? That was my experience. But all these serious people laughed, and they smiled. And I thought, I wonder, I wonder how I can get more of that. And then he dunked me, and I went, <laughs> and was cold for the rest of the service. But that was my baptism story. And then I grew up, we moved to Florida, and youth ministry became my safe place. Uh, I loved being able to go to church and be an absolute goofball and find adults that had patience for me. That's why I'm so passionate about our youth ministry here. I know that I would not be here if it were not for the very patient, very loving adults that led our youth ministry. And I found that place as a safe place for me, and I knew that that's what I wanted to do with my career. I did fine in undergrad and got accepted to a master's program uh, in Washington, D.C. And I also applied to be an assistant youth director part-time in Tampa. I don't know if you know this about assistant youth directors. They typically do not make a lot of money. And so I looked at those two options, and the pull that I had to serve in youth ministry was so strong. I knew that God must be at work. And so I became an assistant youth director. And in that, I found that I loved being able to produce a safe space for other kids. I would see kids, and I didn't know their whole story, but I knew it wasn't great. But I knew that they were going to be safe and loved at church. 
And it's also nice to play dodgeball for a living if I, if I have to admit it. You know, that, that probably had something to do with it. Free pizza every, every Sunday night, come on, too easy. And so I knew, I knew in my call I was going to be a youth pastor for the rest of my life. And some things started changing. Well, this new group of sixth graders came in and they started calling me Mr. LeBlanc. And I didn't really like the way that felt. And then my beard got more gray in it. Started looking at the, at the registrations of, of kids and I'd see that the, the parents' age was getting closer and closer to my age. It used to be, wow, moms and dads are so old. I'm cool and young. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait, did I go to high school with you? And as I saw that gap close, I felt my relevance kind of disappear and evaporate. There are older people that do youth ministry very well. I'm just not them. And so I was in the process of going to seminary, and I was in a preaching class. And I was listening to my friends that were talking about, they were, they were going back to their churches, and they had a, a trustee meeting or a finance meeting. And I remember thinking to myself, ha, good for you. I'm in youth ministry. I don't have to go to those meetings. And that's when the Holy Spirit spoke to me. The Holy Spirit has not spoken to me very often, but the Holy Spirit was very clear in this moment. The Holy Spirit said, I need you in those rooms. I need you in those meetings. And I said, dang it, I don't want to do that. That is not what I want to do. But I left the class and I called my wife and said, hey, this is what I heard and here we are. <laughs> I mean. You know, the support of my spouse throughout all of this is, it could be a whole sermon in itself, but that's definitely not what Amanda wants. (laughs) And the support was just incredible. But that is my call story. It started with God's grace. It met my passion. And it manifested itself through the power of the Holy Spirit. It was a dream I could not shake. There were times when youth ministry got hard, got really, really difficult. It's tough to be an adult and to speak seriously about ping pong. It's hard to talk to parents and, you know, maybe they're a lawyer or an accountant or something, and you really want them to take you seriously while you're wearing, like, flip-flops and a t-shirt that says, you know, I love Jesus, you know, and, and you are sweaty because you just played paintball with a bunch of middle school boys. That's difficult, right? And so I would think, I, I'm going to get out of this. I, I'm going to get a real job. I'm going to get a real job, and, you know, I can teach Bible study one night a week. And, you know, maybe I could go to a small church and, and fill in the pulpit every once in a while. And, you know, I could mentor a couple kids. And even in my fantasies of quitting youth ministry or quitting ministry altogether, I found myself doing ministry. I found myself doing those things because I couldn't, I couldn't shake this dream. And it was a passion I could not avoid. Here's something really, really important. If you don't hear anything else this morning, I want you to hear this. Our calling exists where our greatest passions and the world's greatest needs converge. Think of it as a Venn diagram. Our calling exists where our greatest passions and the world's greatest needs converge. Where that overlap exists, that's your calling. I can't tell you what your passions are, Finding what your passions are can be difficult, especially later in life, especially if you're a parent. Your passions when you're a parent are to take care of your child. But God has placed passions in all of our lives. God has placed passions in our hearts, not just so that we can find joy in existence, which is a part of it, 
but God has placed passions in your life because your passions are needed by the world around us. We don't need any more Christians that are barely fulfilling their call because they're not passionate about it. In my role as your pastor, one of my jobs is to ask people to serve in ministry, ask people to serve as a trustee or finance or or serve in the youth ministry or serve in music. And I'm always grateful for a yes. But in a strange way, I'm always more grateful for a thoughtful no. When someone says, no, that's just not for me, I know that someone's thinking critically about their passion. The world doesn't need more passionless Christians filling a chair because a pastor they like asked them to. The world doesn't need that. Instead, what the world needs are Christians that are willing to look within their souls and find the story that God is writing in them. Our calling exists where our greatest passions and the world's greatest needs converge. Being faithful to our call means believing in a future where God's dreams for us come true. So I want to share kind of more churchy words, but kind of define them as best I can. These two words, vocation and job. My dad went to a a vocational high school where he learned how to print the same year that the Xerox became really popular. He had other friends that became a mechanic. We're still driving cars. My dad did not become a printer. I digress. But a vocational high school is where you learn to trade. We as followers of Jesus, we all have vocations. And for some of us like me, that is also our job. Our job is how we take care of our lives, our families, our, our own needs. But a vocation is how we participate in the kingdom of God. A vocation is how we participate in the kingdom of God. I think about vocation when I think about the volunteers that led the youth ministry that I was a part of. These people would sometimes be teachers. I distinctly remember one woman, she served lunch in the local elementary school, but she also led a middle school girls small group. Her job was to serve lunch. Her vocation was to serve that small group. All of us have a vocation. Every single Christian is called to a vocation. All of us have a way that whatever our job may be, to participate in the kingdom of God. Samuel was perfectly fine just having a job, cleaning up the temple, sweeping the floor, maybe you know, getting an outside job, part-time job at the local subway and you know, doing whatever as a teenager would. But God had a plan for Samuel's vocation, and he was faithful to that call. God had a plan for my vocation. I, regardless of how hard I would fight it, I would continue to be called back to serve as a pastor. That was my calling. I could not shake it. It was a dream I could not put down. All of us, all of us, all of us have that same dream in the mind of God. And being faithful to our call means believing in a future where God's dreams for us come true. So how do you find your vocation? Well, you need to follow your passion and listen to the needs of the world. Like I said, I can't tell you what your passion is. Maybe your passion is kids. Maybe you love being around little people. Maybe your passion is to be away from kids and you hate being around little people. That's valuable. Maybe you have a passion for organizing. Maybe you have a passion for meeting new people. 
Maybe you have a passion for cooking. Maybe you have a passion for serving the world around you in service. Last week I preached at, or week before last, I preached at camp. And one of the things I asked the middle schoolers to do was to write out their big, hairy, audacious goals for their life. And one of the kids, sixth or seventh grader, hands me his paper. They weren't supposed to turn it in, but sometimes you can't break old habits, and they started turning them into me, which was very sweet. But his card said that he wanted to become a chef so that he could cure world hunger. And he handed it to me. Go and do it, bud. And he went, okay. And he walked away. I was like, That's, that kid is great. He has a passion for it. He has a passion for cooking. And he, at this young age, had already seen a way that that job could become a vocation. How that passion could be turned into a change in the world around him. So how do you find your vocation? Follow your passion and listen to the needs of the world. And a lack of passion may derive from not being able to hope. A lack of passion may derive from not being able to hope. I think, friends, sometimes we struggle to find our own passion because we don't have hope for the future. I think sometimes we can't find our own passion because we wonder what's the point. Maybe you're struggling to find your passion because you don't know what the next 10 years, next five years, next 10 months, next three weeks holds for you. Maybe that's why your passion is not clear to you. So if you can't follow your passion, lean into hope. Find a way to be hopeful in your community. Believe in your city. Believe in your neighborhood. Believe in this church. Believe in God's call in your life. I promise passion will spring from that well of hope. And know this, friends, hear this, that if you don't do it, no one will. If you do not do it, no one will. I believe that God has not called some of us, but God has called all of us. I know that if instead of becoming a pastor and I went and did a master's program or did some other job, drove truck like my dad or got some other job anywhere, that someone else would have missed out on what I do in my job. Someone else would have become a pastor, but they wouldn't have the gifts and abilities that God has filled me with, wouldn't have the same passion, wouldn't have the same story, and people would miss out on what God is telling them because of that. I know that all of you have been filled with a particular story, a particular call, a particular vocation that no one else can do. And if you don't do it, no one else will. Being faithful to our call means believing in a future where God's dreams for us come true. You are needed. You are in the game. You're needed. I think a lot of us might believe that we can sit on the bench instead of participating in the game of bringing about the kingdom to the earth. But we're all off the bench. We're all in the game. You are needed. Being faithful to our call means believing in a future where God's dreams for us come true. All right, friends. I hope you heard something in today's message that made an impact in your life, helped you know that you're loved by God, and inspired you to do something about the gospel that is offered to you. 
Now receive this blessing as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.